Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, a show of Standard Reason, and I'm glad you're a part of it, as I always say. It's great having you on board. And I, I enjoy so much when people um, and let me know <clears throat> how beneficial the show has been to them. It, it, radio is a strange medium because you're <laughs> here in a booth and you're just kind of talking to yourself, or so it seems. Now, of course, I have some people on board here, and I know that you're out there listening, but it isn't the same as talking to an audience where you can see their reactions and and uh, adjust to their reactions. And, and um, uh, anyway, it's, it's just very different. So uh, both have a certain level of satisfaction and uh, both have a certain impact. But um, it, it is nice when I hear that people say, yeah, I've been listening to you for a long time and uh, – um, and thank you. So I thank you for that. Um, what I really enjoy hearing, though, is when people tell me uh, that they have been listening for a long time, and they started listening before they were Christians, and now they're believers. Now, obviously, when I hear this from them, I haven't led them to the Lord, but I was instrumental, according to what they told me, in them becoming Christians. And some of you know this is true about J. Warner Wallace. Uh, this is true about Abdul Murray, who we've had here on this program, the Muslim who became a Christian. This is tr- true about uh, John Noyce, who's on our team. You know, now, uh, these were all people that were in my garden, so to speak, uh, before they became followers of Jesus, and none of them did I have anything to do with leading to Christ, that is, the harvest. And I don't even know how the harvest happened in their case. I do know that John Noyes was never harvested, strictly speaking. He he had no, no recollection of becoming a Christian. He just knew that he was one which is a, a very important part of what I write in Street Smarts, and um, I've talked about this before. I guess it bears repeating, uh, because repetition is the mother of learning, and the more you repeat, the more people remember that concept. Francis Schaeffer has written a number of books, but his basic concepts, his basic approach <clears throat> to understanding Christianity and defending Christianity is repeated in almost all of his books, and understanding culture. It's just over and over and over and over again, and it really sticks. And so I feel the same way about this. My emphasis in my life is not, and my interest is not in evangelism. Uh, that is, in, I should say, is not in leading people to Christ. Evangelism isn't even the emphasis of my life. People sometimes introduce me as a guy who has a great heart for evangelism. I would never characterize myself that that way, or a great heart for the lost. My heart is for followers of Christ to disciple them. And so I, I think about reality and the team players that are there. I, I, I feel a responsibility for those people on my team and those vi- visiting talent that uh, that we work with. My, I, what I am drawn to is helping them do their job better helping them be more effective at what they're doing. And there's and this has always been in my life, partly because this is the way my life with Christ began, under the tutorship of, uh, the tutoring, I should say, uh, of Craig Englert, who was my first discipler, and really, in many ways, my most significant discipler because of the two to three year 
relationship, intense relationship, that we were we were together, and he influenced my life and really laid a foundation. Ever since then, it's just been my in my DNA to 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 want to encourage others and have discipleship groups. And we we had groups. Virtually everybody on my team uh, now, well, actually the team has rolled over a bit, but um, uh, Amy and and. Uh, uh, Stephen Stephen Wagner, who's no longer with us, he's got his own enterprise, and and uh, uh, um, Alan Schleeman, and I'm just trying to think. They were all part of discipleship groups I had in my home 20 years ago, and um, now uh, I I don't do groups quite like that anymore because my schedule's different. But I still am reaching out to people to help them pass the baton to them in some way, especially people that are in my broader discipline. That's where my focus is in helping them be more effective apologetics ambassadors, professional speakers, bloggers, YouTubers, writers, etc. And um, that's where my heartbeat is. It's not in, it's not in winning the world for Christ, but I am still a follower of Jesus and the Great Commission is to disciple, but of course you can't disciple when there aren't Christians, so evangelism is a necessary prerequisite to that. And uh, and so what I offer to, to people a lot is this a means by which you can evangelize more effectively, because it's a means that has helped me to be more effective as an evangelist. But when I say evangelist, I really mean ambassador, because I'm not thinking about closing the deal, having altar calls, inviting people to pray to receive Christ. I've been taking polls. Again, I'm not sure if I've told you this yet or not, but because it's a recent development. But I've been taking polls that uh, of audiences took two last weekend to find out how many people in my audience that are Christian did not become Christians by walking down the aisle for an altar call or praying with someone to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Someone led them to the Lord in that sense. Um, the, the harvesting didn't happen that way. And my, the average has been between 60 and 70 percent. Amazingly, other people raise their hands. That is, those people were harvested directly by the Holy Spirit. I kind of jokingly say, they harvested themselves, and that was my case. I, my, my brother challenged me more. I mean, when he came to my place that uh, so many years ago, half a century ago, to my apartment in West L.A., started telling me more about Jesus, and I said, I've already become a Christian, or I always want to become a Christian. I've already decided I want to become a Christian, so bada-boom. Probably when I said that, I already was a Christian. So uh, what? since that's the way it usually works, I don't worry about the harvest, because the harvest is easy when the fruit is ripe. I worry about gardening. And that's what tactics is all about. They are tools for gardening. And that's what Street Smarts is all about. They give tools for gardening. It's a sequel to tactics. It's the third step of tactics on steroids, but it's how to get you out into conversations with people in a relaxed way, in a smart way, in the street, the spiritual street, so to speak, where you can make a difference by using the tactical game plan as applied to specific challenges like atheism or pro-choice or challenges about Jesus and the Gospels and the Bible and science and the Bible and um, gender and, and, and sex and marriage, etc. 
So, but what am I doing? I'm just gardening. That's what I'm doing here, too. So whenever I hear that someone says that I was in your garden, and now I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm thrilled. I didn't gather that fruit. Jesus says in John chapter 4 that the one who who reaps and the one who sows, that would be the one who harvests and the one who gardens, in my terminology, can rejoice together. Got it. That's great. Uh, doesn't matter. We're all in the same team, and uh, God is the ultimate harvester, right? He's the one who's ultimately responsible, not me. So that's where my efforts are. All right, with those uh, kind of opening remarks behind us, let's uh, let's go to uh, your calls. And this is Scott in Bismarck, North Dakota. Hello, Scott. Hey, Greg. How are you tonight? I'm doing all right. I'm wondering, is it, has fall fell there yet? Are there still leaves of the tree, or are they gone there uh, in Bismarck? 50, it's 50-50. Okay. <laughs> I imagine you have um, a dramatic fall, though, uh, but it's probably short. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on the year. Uh, we're still in the 70s today, 50s tomorrow, so it's not terrible. Oh, okay. That's that's kind of an Indian summer day here yep. today. Yep, 100%. Okay. Um, so it's kind of funny you opened with that because I just want to quickly say I'm a strategic partner. Oh. I just want to thank you and your organization. You've deepened my faith, uh, clarified my understanding of Scripture, because I was fairly new to coming back to Christianity when uh, somebody handed me a book of the story of reality. Mm-hmm. Well, that's <laughs> and great. since then I've... <laughs> yeah, since then I've bought multiple copies to give other people. I have you know tactics and and a bunch of other books. Uh, wow. interest. Uh, so if I understand, uh, everything you've recommended, pretty much I picked oh. up and read. So wow. Well, thank you. And if I got that right, did you say that it was reading the story of reality that helped turn things around for you and headed you in the right direction? Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Wow. Absolutely. That yep. is very cool. That's very cool. Thank you. Glad um, to hear that. So I was listening to your last week's uh, podcast uh, this morning when I was walking the dog, and I listened to you tell the story about you were speaking at um, Transylvania University. Oh, yeah. And um, about how you wish you had made a remark of uh, when the, <laughs> I think of the student asked, um, can a gay person be a Christian? Yeah, well, I was and, a, that was actually at a... Uh, that was actually at a, a Christian school, and oh, I answered correct. questions, yep. and that was the question, and I forgot to add something to it that I wish yep, I had yep, added. Yep. Right. And I, I listened to that whole thing, and um, and you said to get your point across, you wanted to say, um, well, can somebody who is consistently uh, committing adultery be a right, Christian? Right. To which they would say no, and then, because i 100% with you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that led me to some of my own thought processes I've been struggling with over the last few years and um, made me think of uh, Luke 16, verse 18, which, please don't slap my hand for citing a Bible verse here. (laughs) No, that's uh, all right. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Jesus says, everyone who commits divorce, or, or sorry, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So. I'm on my second marriage. My wife is on her second marriage. Mm-hmm. So that by that definition would say that I'm living in adultery every day. Yeah. So I shouldn't be a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, 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 I understand. Christian, I right? understand you know? the, the yeah. thrust of your question. Okay. Yeah. Now, and, I, and I understand that, uh, you know, Jesus died first on the cross, and his forgiveness overcomes all. 
but still there's a ledger and it sounds very problematic. <laughs> no, I, I understand that. And I, I, I think this is a, um, a somewhat difficult passage to, uh, to deal with. I, I never like this one because I think there's a point that Jesus is making here. And in fact, you said never read a Bible verse, you're concerned about that. But it sits here kind of all by itself, okay? And mm-hmm. so there's a there's there's a bunch of little statements here. Um the uh that that kind of there's comments and then this this doesn't have a context. It isn't as if there are other things that come before or after it that help us understand more clearly what's going on. Now, the parallel passages in the synoptics do have more information, and uh, and I think that in—I don't have it right in front of me, but in the—I um, think in one of the other parallel passages, the disciples say, wow, if it's—that's the way it is, then it's better we don't even get married— that's what they say. And Jesus says, well, to some, it's been given that, you know, eunuchs for the kingdom or whatever. Um, and mm-hmm. so um, the point I think we take back from that additional information is that Jesus is is making a rather strict command regarding marriage, okay? A strict mm-hmm. command, all right? And uh, that's the way we're supposed to take it. In our culture, there is not the, the the sense that uh, the gravity of divorce I don't think is present in our culture in general or in the church. Now, everybody acknowledges that divorce is really nasty, ugly, painful, a rending of two people, and uh, and and so consequently they, they are all willing to acknowledge that divorce is not a good thing, but sometimes it's a better thing to do than stay married, okay? And I think that mm-hmm. lots of times that's because they have a wrong perspective on things, okay? There's a, a, a book that was written, and I, I've, I've been—I've read it, you know, different—I've read it once, and then I've, I read back on it sometimes because I am a married person. And the book is titled Sacred Marriage, and the subtitle is— I mean, if you, all you remember is the subtitle, you've gotten a lot out of this. Subtitle is, Maybe God Designed Marriage Not to Make Us Happy, But to Make Us Holy. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, and I think there's tremendous amount of truth in that, that the relationships we have in our life, the committed relationships, and these are family relationships with children, with siblings, with parents, and with spouses— these are fixed relationships. Obviously, the familial ones are fixed by nature, all right? Our parents are always going to be our parents, for example. Our kids will always be our kids. But yep. the other one is this one seems flexible, and it's not meant to be that. It's meant to be permanent, okay? And so it, it is in the—now, I'm just speaking in general terms. I'm not speaking to your circumstances or your wife's circumstances yep, or no, anybody in particular. Yep. But in general terms, what God intends for us to do is make wise decisions and stick with those decisions, because this is a one this is a one-way ticket, okay? Now, when people mm-hmm. understand that marriage is a one-way ticket, it— um, I think the incentive is much more powerful to keep all the aspects of their marriage vows, okay? Because it isn't Agreed. just until death do us part. 
it's to have and to hold in sickness and in health, uh, to love and to cherish. It's mostly that have and hold, love and cherish. There are different things that we're supposed to do, forsaking all others. So this includes our thought life as well. So we're there are other things that are part of our vows that are not just stick with the marriage when it gets so awful, then we just decide to split or whatever. Because if we kept the other vows, judiciously sought to do that, and to be made holy in the midst of whatever conflict that is, then it might be the case that the marriage wouldn't have gone south and would have come together and worked out. And there's a lot of people that can bear testimony to that. Okay, so I'm not looking with a judgmental eye again at anybody, but I'm just—because I know marriage is hard, okay? So it's one of the most difficult relationships that we enter in, if not the most difficult relationship that we enter in into our lives. And there's lots of opportunity, therefore, for God to use that as a sharp scalpel to do surgery on us, like the subtitle says, not to make us happy, but to make us holy. So, um, okay, that's one part of the picture. And I think that Jesus' statement here makes it really clear that divorce— and it, it, divorce is, is really serious, okay? <clears throat> God intends for human beings to have one sexual partner for life. When you break that, that pattern, that rule, if you will, it's not just an ideal. It isn't something we shoot for. It's something we're supposed to obey. Then what it forces us into an adulterous, a de facto adulterous circumstance, Okay, and I think that's what he's 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 mentioning here. Now, what about people who that get divorced? Then, oh, then one other element here. Obviously, there are exceptions to this equation, to this calculus, and there are two obvious ones. One of them is when there's already adultery that been committed, or when there's an abandonment of the non-believing spouse, and this is in First Corinthians seven. Okay. Yep. But there's a yeah. There's an excellent um, and then one. There's a, a way that Paul states it in such cases or something like that. In such cases. Now I never noticed this before. I read. Um, I always have a hard time remembering this guy's name. Uh, Amy. He. Oh, Wayne Grudem. There it came to me. Amy didn't have to help me this time. Wayne Grudem wrote a small booklet on divorce and remarriage. And his point is similar to what a point that I've made in the past, is that there are actually more legitimate biblical reasons for getting to be being divorced. Divorced, and if it's a legitimate reason, then um, then remarriage is also legitimate because you are not under, how does Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 7, you're not under um, compul- not compulsion, but you, you, you are freed from the obligation, something to that effect, all right? <clears throat> and he gives a, a very convincing rationale while a, a number of things might qualify. So Jesus' ethic isn't one that forces a person to stay in a dangerous circumstance, um, and the danger can can be characterized in a number of different ways, and Grudem goes into detail on that. Um, and so if there is a circumstance that's like that, that uh, that falls under these other categories, like abuse, uh, sexual abuse, danger, uh, abuse to children, 
physical harm, things like that. Well, these are also, I, I look at it in terms of a moral hierarchy. There are some things that are more important than staying married, and that is the health uh, of people, you know, especially children, but also wives. And so there can be a legitimate trumping of a greater um, a, a greater moral uh, principle than staying married, okay? So that that's something that factors into legitimate divorce that would not be an example of adultery. Okay, so uh, so it, it, I think that the categories are more expansive than just um, somebody already committing adultery or, or if there's abandonment by someone. Um, and by the way, the adultery, the word there is pornea, so that e- even seems larger than uh, just than just sexual intercourse with another person. It may ex- be expanded beyond that. Okay, so I'm just trying to expand those categories biblically a little bit. Now, having said that, my conviction is a large number of divorces among Christians are not b- biblically justified, okay? Th- th- there's divorce and there's remarriage. And again, I'm not judging any particular person or circumstance right now. I'm just saying large numbers. And um, now what? Now you have new families, new kids, a new marriage, okay? Now, some would say that every day you're in an adulterous situation. I don't think that's true. I think the act of divorcing inappropriately might have been an act of sin, and remarriage to someone else instead of being reconciled, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, might be a sin, but it's not a sin that can't be confessed and, after a fashion, repented from. Now, you can't repent from a new marriage without getting another divorce. And yes. so that creates— and you can't a, get another divorce yes. unless you have a biblical reason. Yes, yeah. there, there you go. So this yeah. is why, <laughs> in a certain sense, a, a mistaken or um, illicit divorce and remarriage— cannot be repented of. It can be confessed, and then mm-hmm. then the new circumstances that God, you know, can bless, um, can be can can be embraced, and uh, and I you know I actually think that that's kind of like a sticky kind of situation. I wish people weren't mm-hmm. in circumstances like that, but I I don't know the, any other way to express it than that. Okay, because all sin is forgivable. And um, and including divorce and remarriage that wasn't completely justified, and therefore now what? Well, I want to walk with the Lord. Well, then you still try to have a good marriage, and acknowledge before the Lord that maybe this wasn't the right decision you made in the past, and now you're going to try to rectify that by living this one, this marriage out appropriately. Of course, a lot of people get divorced and remarried, get divorced again, and then get remarried and get divorced again because they keep making the same mistakes, you know. Right. So that that's the best I have to offer you right now. I, I would suggest that, that you get a hold perfect. of Wayne Grudem's book on divorce and biblical remarriage. It's not very long, but it does go into much more detail. In fact, I want to—I was at a book table looking at it, and I should have bought it when I was there, but I didn't. And so now I probably have to go to Amazon and order it, but uh, uh, that's what—I would suggest looking at that and just keeping in mind the things that I've thought. But I don't think you have to wake up every day thinking, I'm I'm in an adulterous relationship right now with my wife. I don't think that's the way God looks at it. Perfect. Thank you, Greg. All right. Hope that helps. It does. Okay, buddy. Have a good night. All right. Bye-bye. 
Yeah, that's hard, man. It just, ouch, just thinking about that. Let's take a quick, should we break? No, we got a bunch of people on the phone. We'll just keep going. We don't need the break. All right, so this is uh, Sarah in Oceanside, Southern Cal, actually San Diego County, North County. Welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. Hi, Sarah. So I have been looking, um, you know, just at all the different versions of the Bible that we have published out there. Yeah. Um, We live in a day and age where everybody wants to author their own things, which I think is great in terms of testimony and some of the studies. However, um, when it comes to the Bible itself, it, it was an area of concern of mine more recently. And with the copyright laws being, what is it, 20 to 25 percent difference in the publication, um, I know that's getting into the minutia, but there was two passages that, that popped out for me when I was thinking this over. And I just maybe, I wanted to get a little bit better explanation right. of them. One was Deuteronomy 4.2, and the other one is Revelation 22, 18, okay. verses 18 and 20, or, um, 19. Uh, uh-huh. I don't know if you want me to read them to you. Well, um, I have it right here. The Deuteronomy okay. 4 passage says, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Okay? The Revelations is similar. It says here, uh, let's see, just say verse 18, chapter 18 I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Okay, so I'm 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 wanted to be clear on exactly your concern. Is your concern with commentaries or translations or? Uh, well, for one, when I when I look at like where some of these are printed, they're printed in countries where the minority is Christianity, and. Um, I mean, we don't, like, go through with a fine-tooth comb sometimes. You know, we buy a case of Bibles or something to give out. And, I mean, I know this sounds probably ridiculous to think that they would do a bunch of them that were published incorrectly. But I I don't know. I guess I'm always thinking security-wise or so. I asked myself one day, I said, if someone stole my Bible and took it from me and replaced it, you know, would I know? that somebody put something in there that shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I'm just thinking of it with the future generations. I have small children. I'm teaching them. We've got the educational publications. We have these little pamphlets, things yeah. that we can buy. And you switch around a few of the words, it changes the entire meaning. You know, and, and that's being done a lot, where things are, you know, they're stretching it. And, and like what you were saying earlier, where we're trying to um, appease the worldview, uh-huh. you know, versus what God would want us to be communicating. Right. Okay. Let me let me go backwards. Start with Revelation. Go to Deuteronomy. Okay. Okay. Um, some people um, generalize from the verse in Revelation to the whole Scripture. This is the last 
um, of the four last verses, this is the, you know, 18 and 19 of 21 in the uh, chapter 22 of Revelation. It's almost the last thing that's said. And what they do is they generalize, this is the last book, so this is speaking of the entire corpus of Scripture. And that's not the case. It's not what he's referring to. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, the Bible didn't appear as a book until probably the 4th century and 5th century. And in other words, all together under one covering. That's called a codex. Books didn't even really exist at the time that Revelation was written. They were scrolls, or they were, mm-hmm. or they were, not necessarily scrolls. They could have been, uh, you know, parchments that were that were gathered together, whatever. But the, but the the books bound together a codice, codices, a codex um, that came later. So it can't be referring to the book of the Bible in verse 18, because that's anachronistic. Those kind, the book of the Bible didn't exist when this was written. We think of it now because we think of the Bible as a book. That is talking to the, regarding that prophecy. And what it is is a strong statement saying, leave this prophecy alone, and we don't mess with it. This is God's Word, okay? Now, um, you know, when translations are translations. They're the best attempt at translating Scripture into another language. So there are going to be different people that are going to have different senses of what the best words in the vernacular of the people, in our case English, would be to represent the original words. So you're just going to have variations of uh, on a theme there. You're going to have different ideas about what is the best characterization of those words in your own language. That, there's nothing wrong with that. That's an attempt to try to really capture the true meaning of the text itself. That is the nature of translations. Even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, often indicated by the Roman numeral 70, LXX, um, even that had—there were actually different versions of the Septuagint. There were—I th- think there were three different—you have the Septuagint and then two other Greek translations. I got a bone up on this. I was just reading it the other day. And so they're comparing back and forth to try to get back to the original. But a translation is a translation, okay? And uh, and people who are copying are doing their best to copy accurately, okay? So this has to do with the book of Revelation. Don't tamper with the revelation is what's being said here, okay? And I think the same thing is being said here in Deuteronomy. Were you going to say something? No, I, I'm following along with you. I am okay. in agreement. I, okay, it's good. Just, um, these, these two passages stood out for me for okay. some reason. All right. Oh, I, I, I shouldn't say for some reason. God's very <laughs> particular about sure. Well, what that's okay. Out. <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, and there's going to be Bible study aids where you have people commenting on it. You're going to have paraphrases. Pastors paraphrase all the time. I do it. So you read a text of scripture. You're trying to explain what it what it means from the text, and then you paraphrase it. You know, it's well, like I uh, just had this as an argument um, with when I've talk to other people is this whole copyright, you know, how it's different, and, um, you know, it's just kind of their way of disregarding God, you know, taking God out of the picture. Um, I'm not sure what you're talking about, about the the copyright issue. I miss—I mean, I heard you mention that, but I wasn't quite sure the point you were making. uh, So I've actually ran into a gentleman that 
spent 40 years um, studying the different versions of the Bible and sure. the different publications. And um, so, are you? We've cons- had an ongoing conversation about, and I'm, uh, and for me, when I have the conversation, I come from a place of a testimony versus the word, and so now I'm trying to integrate the two. Okay, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that does, but. My- but let me ask, a, 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 the reason there's copyrights on Bibles is because they're translations. It, the, the, the copyright is on the translation, because it's in English, not in Greek. It's, not this, it, it's, a, it's a work of its own, and so the work itself is copyrighted. It doesn't mean you can't use it. Obviously, you can in lots of different ways. But there's a copyright because the added creative work that went into translate it into a new language— is an additional work, so to speak, of a writer. And that's why these things are copyrighted. Does that make... When authors, when pastors put their name on the Bible and say, this is my version of the Bible, um, when is that okay to do that? We mean like a MacArthur Study Bible? Right, or like a... Dr. David Jeremiah, or any—there's a lot of them that— Okay, what they're—okay, what they're doing—of course, I haven't looked at all of these, but like the MacArthur Study Bible, I think he's using the New American Standard translation, but what he's doing is adding his study notes to it. So the text is still the text, but in the margins or at the bottom, you have his reflection. Now, you could have a separate book that talks to you about, here's what Deuteronomy is all about, but he, instead of writing a separate book, he just put it in the, in, the, in the margins of the Bible. So the words of the Bible are still the biblical words. He's not adding to those biblical words. He's just explaining uh, in the margins and in the as footnotes. As long as you don't add the biblical words in particular is what, what it's cautioning about, then. Because— that's what I didn't understand, like, because we put, we we kind of, you know, we'll end up putting our slant on what God, oh, yes, you but know, maybe th- even saying to us, you know, yes, individually, I, you know what I mean? Right, I do, but there's no avoiding that. That's called, that's yeah. called interpretation. So we're going to tell you, here's what I think he's, he means by this statement. And uh, there's, everybody has to interpret you can't avoid it. You read even when you're listening to my words, you have to make sense out of what it appears my meaning is, and it's possible to mistake that. And the same thing with the Bible. So people could have, in fact, famously, there are there are look at the uh, which study Bible has the uh, four thousand four B.C. as the creation date. Okay, he just you know did math on the Book of Genesis, and then he said the the world was created in four thousand. Four B.C. Okay, that was a study Bible, a very famous one, and uh, now that's not holy writ. That's his opinion of what he takes out of the text. Okay. Okay. All right. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there is a problem when you have something like the New World Translation, N.W.T. That's a translation of the Bible that the Jehovah's Witnesses use, and it is clear. <laughs> that they have corrupted the text in the translation to comport with their heretical doctrines. And I'm using all of my words advisedly here. I mean literally a heresy about Jesus, and I mean literally their text has been corrupted to support their heretical view. Now, that's entirely different. 
that's just that's just distortion of God's word. I don't think that falls under the uh, prohibition in Revelation. I don't think it falls under Deuteronomy four either. So let me read this verse one. Now, O Israel, oh, let me back up for a second. Um, do you know what Deuteronomy is about? Why it was given? No. Okay. I'm going to say I'm going to say no because I I. You don't want to take a chance. Okay, no, fair enough. And it's not to embarrass you or to push you in the corner. Deuteronomy, the word deuteronomos means second law. Okay? Okay. Nomos is law, deutero, second. Okay, so Deuteronomy is the second time the law is given. It is given on Sinai, and it's recorded in Exodus and in uh, and in uh, uh, Leviticus. Okay? Then what happens in Numbers? In Numbers— they wander around for 70 years or whatever, you know, and uh, or 40 years or whatever it is. They wander, 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 wander. All the one generation that received the law at Sinai died off. And now you have a whole new generation that doesn't even remember Egypt mm-hmm. and Sinai. And so now they're about to take the promised land, and Moses gives the law a second time, Deuteronomos, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. So what you find in Exodus and Leviticus about the law, you will also find in Deuteronomy, okay? Words are a little bit different, but still, it's the same. Same, same covenant. It is a covenant. It is a contract that God makes, okay? Now, with that in mind— Reading chapter 4, verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which I own, uh, which the Lord the God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you. What word? This covenant, this statutes, nor take away from it. You can't make the law more burdensome than it is, and you can't remove the requirements of the law. That you may keep the commandments of the law of the Lord your God, which I command you. Okay? <clears throat> your your eyes have seen what has happened, blah, 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 blah. And then he goes on, and he gives them more advice. But do you see that these words have to do with the covenant of the law, the contract that God has made with the Jews. When you make a contract that's binding to people, you don't take out words, you don't add words to it. You sign the contract, and there it is. That's the point that that uh, that God is making here. Uh, I should, should, should say Moses. These are Moses' words um, I, that Moses is making— <clears throat> Um, and the directive that he's given to the people. This is a contract between you and God. It's binding. You don't add to it. You don't take away. It's all he's referring to. He's not referring to the whole corpus of Scripture. By the way, this is Deuteronomy 4, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the first five books of the Bible. There's another 61 books to follow. Isn't that adding? To God's Word? Well, it is adding to God's Word, but it's not a violation of what Moses is talking about here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Understood. Make sense? Yes. Okay, dear. It's good talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, Sarah. All right, bye. Okay, we're going to keep moving here. Uh, we got about 20 minutes, not quite 20, but we'll. I think we'll get everybody here. Let's go to Glenn in—yes, um, yes, 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 yes. Calgary, Cal— 
Calgary, what? It looks like it's Calgary, California. Are you in California, Glenn? No, I'm in I'm in Canada. Oh, Canada, C A O. That stands for Canada. You know how yeah. they got the name Canada? No, it, they just the, pulled, they just pulled the letters out of the out of the can, and the, they pulled first. They pulled a C, and the guy said C A, N A, D A. Yeah, that's a Canada I had joke. Heard that you have heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you probably didn't think it was funny then first time anyway, but I just thought I'd say that. But okay. Next time, Amy, when you see a Canada guy, say C A N A D A. Just put that in there because it looks like California to me because I'm in Southern California. Glenn from Calgary, Canada, C A N A D A. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I what? wanted to say I am a strategic partner. Oh, you okay. Even after what I said, you still are, right? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, good. Thank you so much. So glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, what what I'm calling about is someone I work with came to me telling me that they have found, uh, they have done MRIs on people who are transgender and done them on people who are not transgender. Uh-huh. The brain structure is different. Mm-hmm. So they're purporting that this is the reason they're transgender. Mm-hmm. Because the So the question so is, wondering. what do we make of that, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, I have only heard of this once kind of in passing, so I know nothing about the details, all right? Okay. So, but this raises a number of questions to me, all right? Mm-hmm. And it, precisely how are people's minds, the brain scans, different? Because, uh, you know, uh, Brain scans show different things. All they can do is show physical features of the brain, because they can't scan your thoughts. What they can do is see activity in certain areas when you're thinking certain things. Okay? So are they suggesting, then, that this demonstrates that people who are transgender are forced in some sense or biologically determined to be transgender, okay, um, when, when uh, and there's no control that they have over it. That's, that's one question, all right? Um, I think that's my, my co-worker's implication, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's the case they're trying to make, but the question is, does the evidence demonstrate that is so? I'm suspicious of it, and I'll tell you why I'm suspicious about it. Because these, um, the, the first of all, the, the claim now is that gender is fluid. Okay, so it isn't transgender is referring to a male that believes he's female and a female that believes he's she's male. That's right. transgender, but that's only a small section of the. Sp- the so-called gender spectrum. Now, genders are fluid. They can be all over the place. So, uh, are there brain scans that correlate to all of these different kinds of gender that people are coming up with, right? Is there a non-gender distinction with brain scans? Is there a bi-gender distinction with brain scans. Um, How is it that people who are transgender at one point in their development in a couple of years revert back to, and then are really angry that they had surgery, 
to a different gender. Uh, are we suggesting that their brains are shifting all this time? This doesn't seem to fit to me, the things that are going on. What happened is we, in the last ten, uh, the last five years especially, we have had an explosion of uh, of trans uh, of trans, and this all this additional stuff that it's not just uh, trans male to female, female to male, but all of these other boutique genders that people are suggesting. So how, I'd want to see this cashed out in very precise ways. I have not seen that happen yet. I've only just heard of this, but I'm deeply suspicious of it. Okay? The same kinds of claims were made illicitly and inaccurately about homosexuality. And uh, and uh, and they got a lot of press, but it turned out all to be false. But it beca- it got a lot of press, and a lot of people ended up believing in it because it was socially correct to believe this. That there was this, there was a narrative that this reinforced, and so they made a lot more of it than it deserved. Until finally, it came out, and I wrote a piece called "The Nine Percent Fraud," and uh, this was, uh, or no, the Seven Percent Fraud, because the the claim was that nine percent of the people were were homosexual, and there's no changing that that almost 10% of the population, then it turned out that this was a complete fraudulent claim, and the numbers were only about 2%. So, of course, now you take the numbers, and the numbers are all over the chart, all over the, the, you know, all over the place, because there's so much sociological pressure regarding these things for people to report stuff that certainly, that may not be true at all. And uh, I was at, I was at, um, uh, I was at, I won't even say the name, it was a very big church in Southern California, and I spoke there. And when I was having lunch with the pastor, who was the pastor of the youth, uh, the, the youth there, he said, fifty percent of the girls in our youth program um, uh, identify as bisexual. Fifty percent. Now that's nutty. That is yeah, just nutty. That that is that's just reflects a a fad of self-reporting in certain ways that are cool. Yeah. Not because this is true at all. And so this is I I have deep dis- suspicion about things like brain scans that show transgender people have different brains than other people. Or, or something like that. I'd want to know exactly what that looks like and what the proper conclusions are that we're supposed to draw from that. How, and even if they have precise. different... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you, you want precise terms of what, not not just throwing some sort of vague claim, the left hand. Yeah, so not politicized either, you know. Because yeah. this fits a this fits a narrative, and boy, people are going to jump on it and make yeah. these broad claims. Well, they have different brains. Okay, so what? They still have bodies pertaining to a sex different from what they believe. So, 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 what? What matters? It isn't it interesting, by the way. Isn't it interesting that now what matters is the physical activity of the brain, not the physical state of the body, the rest of the body. 
then incidentally, every cell in the brain has genetics matching the physical sex of their body, (laughs) not in the DNA, XX or XY, right? So why does it matter what part of the brain is glowing that's different for those who are transgender? You know, when you get really angry, I promise you different parts of your brain are going to light up when you're under that scope. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So the question is, 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 is there a causal relationship here? Is the brain a certain way that's causing trans, transgender ideation? Or is it transgender ideation that is causing the brain to look that way? That is a very important question at this point. Right. Okay. Very good. Yeah, and it's, I'd, be, I'd be interested to see more about it. Maybe Alan Sleeman has done some work in this, but I, I, I'm just telling you from what I've my experience in the past caused me to causes me to completely distrust this particular piece of so-called scientific information because even if it were true the question is what does that mean right because the body is still the body and you don't need an instrument looking at the brain to know what the body looks like but that's being completely disregarded on this view so why right. all of a sudden is the brain, what the brain's doing, important? It's just another physical part of the body. And at best, you have one part of the body conflicting with the other part of the body, right? Right. Makes sense? Right. All right, okay. Glenn. Thank you. I appreciate your call. Thanks so much. Let's go to Dallas, Texas. You made it, Bruno. Very good. Okay. Hey. Awesome. Yeah. You got like seven minutes Great. Actually, it's quite a uh, bit of time for this. Yeah, (laughs) I know. Um, Yeah, basically, uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm a big fan of your ministry and your books. I appreciate it. You're Um, welcome. Everything you do. Okay. I'm about to start Bible study for the night with my small children, my family, and um, I had a question about the origin of evil. I know it's a broad, complex topic, but really specifically in the um, origin of evil with... Um, Eve, specifically? Yes. And so, uh, you know, I've heard these sort of discussions about, you know, well, how did Eve sin if she didn't already have sin like we do? Because yeah. we sin because we have sin. Right. And my, my straightforward reading of the text seems to suggest that uh, she was simply deceived, like it says, you know, that she wasn't sinning for evil reasons, but what she thought were good things, and Satan deceived her by making her, um, you know, think these good things were going to happen to her. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, that's my understanding. You know, she wasn't necessarily thinking about the disobedience part of it, but rather that she'll be like God, she'll know good and evil. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I know the topic of where did it come from as far as Satan is a much probably more complex topic, but this was sort of my question to you, if you had any thoughts regarding that. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I do have some thoughts, and I, I don't think it's complicated, but and I, I have been concerned with the way some people have characterized it. I think what happened with the devil is the same thing that happened with Eve, okay? And that mm-hmm. is, although in Eve's case there was an additional element, but in both cases— you do not have a disposition to do bad. 
mm-hmm. I should say, in neither case case is there a disposition to do bad. Satan, who was Hillel, the shining one, Lucifer, um, a, um, a leader, I think of like kind of the worship team or something. If we're to understand this passage, uh, I think it's in Ezekiel, um, accurately, and this is where most people go, he was the the most beautiful of all the creatures until until i think it says either evil or pride was found in him and if it was pride it was an example of evil but nevertheless this is where you, you people want to say there there's no explanation for someone doing bad except for having bad already in them and my answer is no this is the nature of freedom of moral freedom. You are not compelled in either way. That's the nature of choice. Now, Satan had uh, a choice, and what happened is, in his heart, pride arose in his heart, and he nurtured it, and maybe it was just a temptation at first, but whatever, it became central to him, and he was taken with his own beauty, whatever, and that's where evil entered into the universe proper. But it entered into the human race when that evil deceiver, now called Satan, the devil, tempted Eve to rebel against God the same way he rebelled against God, and that is doing what she should not do. And when I say in the same way, I just only in the sense that it's a rebellious sin, it wasn't the exact same kind of sin. But in her case, <clears throat> she she wasn't complete. She, she had no compulsion, no tendency to do evil, but she had the choice to obey and trust God, or to trust what the devil was telling her, contrary to God. And she says, no, we are not to eat or touch. Now, she added something there that God didn't say. And then he entices her, and he says, here's what it will do for you. Instead of obeying what God said, about her, about what was good, she decided to obey what she, or to to give in to what she wanted. She saw that it looked good for food. She desired it for the knowledge. So that's all coming from her. But not. But it's it's not taking into consideration the command. If she if she saw it was good for food and she desired it for knowledge, and she then said, and God said no. Mm-hmm. Then she would have exercised her will in spite of these, the appeal. She would have exercised her will to obey rather than to go with the appeal, the sensuous or personal appeal. Now, what I have said in this, in uh, Street Smarts, and it's also something that I wrote in A Solid Ground, that this was the what I call the primal heresy, and it's basically relativism. Instead of instead of acting consistently with the external objective truth of God's command and truth of God's world, the things on the outside, she decided to to go with 
the truth on the inside, true for her, if you will. I'm doing scare quotes here. The truth Mm -hmm. on the inside. And so she went with what she wanted and what she desired. So that's the true for you rather than true. True. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. small t Mm -hmm. true rather than capital T true. And so that's what that's the way I would characterize it. Now, human beings ever since have been, since Adam and Eve then became fallen, and they reproduce after their own kind, they reproduce fallen human beings, both in body and soul. So we're all vulnerable to that, and the sins we now commit are, are in virtue of the fact that we are fallen people. And so uh, there our situation is different than Adam and Eve's. But but Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and follow not God's purposes, but Satan's or their own designs or desires. And that is when all the trouble began. And this is a good lesson for your kids. There's my music, so I'll close this down. This is a good lesson for your kids. Obey God, who says, obey mom and dad, because <laughs> that's the place of safety doing your own thing, following your own heart, is not the place of safety. There you go, Bruno. Thanks for your call. Greg Kokel here at Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.